for the last three weeks since we started James, we've been seeing all the various ways that Christians are to respond when facing trials. James opened his letter by rousing his audience to respond joyfully to the trials that they face, since God was using those trials to complete or perfect them and refine them into the image of Christ. And next, James sought to equip his audience for the task of enduring trials by urging them to respond to any lack that they have with prayer to God. We saw that believers are to pray to God for the wisdom necessary for their faithful endurance of trials. And we also saw that God is willing to give it. And remember that just last week, James encouraged believers struggling with poverty. He encouraged them with the truth that they are inheritors of true and lasting riches in the kingdom of God. Wealthy believers, too, were reminded to stay humble in light of the fleeting nature of life. So clearly this theme of enduring trials has been central to James to his writing in these first several verses. So now as we come to this morning's text, James continues his writing regarding trials by offering a series of encouragements. And it's because of this series of encouragements that we read beyond the text that we're dealing with this morning. This morning we're focusing on verse 12, yet you'll notice that we read all the way down to verse 18. We did this because James, in these six verses, is making one unified point. And the point is this. God is doing good to us through our trials. Now because there's more depth in these six verses that can, that can be done justice in just one sermon, we're going to unpack this truth over the coming weeks. That God is doing good to us through our trials. Now this is not the big idea for this morning's sermon. We'll get to that shortly. But I just wanted to point out that the next few verses in James are very closely connected. So let's briefly follow James' logic, just so we can get an idea of what we'll be exploring in the coming weeks of these six verses. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So that is to say that God will reward those who faithfully endure trials. Your faithful endurance of trials is producing reward for you that is going to benefit you. And then verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And that is to say that if you are a believer, as I said before, God has reward in store for you. God is not out to get you, believer. If the trials and the difficulties that they bring result in you sinning, know that it was not God who enticed you into the sin that causes you so much grief. It is your own sinful heart that does that. So what's the encouragement here? The encouragement is that since God is not the one tempting you, you have real hope of resisting temptation. Because you're not fighting God. That would be an impossible task. Rather, you're fighting your own sin. And the good news is that God is willing and able to provide you with the good gifts necessary for the battle. Look at the next verses. Verses 16 and 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God, far from tempting you and giving you that which will hurt you, is a good father who gives good and perfect gifts to his children for the purpose of drawing them to himself. So you see the encouraging train of logic in these six verses. You will be rewarded for the trials that you endure as God helps you fight against your sin by providing good gifts for you so that you can be his prized possession. So that's what we'll be unpacking over the coming weeks. So now with that said, this morning, we're just dealing with verse 12, which again says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now here's our big idea for this morning. God gives eternal life to those who faithfully endure trials. Again, God gives eternal life to those who faithfully endure trials. So James is meeting the sorrow and sadness that comes from trials head on. So let's look at how he does this. Look at the first sentence. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in the trial. Understand, believer, that you are a recipient of God's favor when you endure trials. So right away, the first sentence of this verse challenges a major misconception that many have about suffering. And that is that those who suffer are experiencing God's displeasure and are being punished by Him for something that they have done wrong. This is not necessarily the case. It's true that some people suffer as a direct result of a specific sin that they've committed. For example, you can think of a thief who steals a car and he's chased by police and then he crashes and is injured such that he has to spend the rest of his life confined to a wheelchair. In such a case, there's a specific sin and then punishment related to that sin. But suppose there was an innocent person who was going about their business and the thief crashed into them. And it was the innocent person who had to be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of their life. But sadly, things like that happen as well. So why do things like that happen? The answer is that punishment is not the only purpose for suffering. God has purposes for trials and the resulting suffering other than punishment. You see, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in the trial. Not cursed, not abandoned, not rejected. Blessed. But what does that mean? How does that work? After all, when you're suffering and someone tells you that it's for your blessing, it seems absurd. So how are you blessed under trial? Well, we saw that on the first Sunday of this month. Cast your mind back a few Sundays to verses 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember what James is saying here. This is the strengthening of the believer that we looked at. This is the refinement of the believer that we looked at. God is making you more and more Christ-like through the hardships that you endure. And yes, indeed, this is a blessing. He is increasing your dependence on Him. He's increasing your appreciation and love for Him. Because our hearts are so easily 
drawn away from him. He must work to rouse us to love him. God is also preparing you for his kingdom, all the while glorifying himself through you. And after all this, the text says, when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. After you have been refined and strengthened to withstand the trials and suffering and hardship, you will be rewarded. After you have spent your life relying on God and loving Him for how He has cared for you and trusting Him when things seem hopeless, after all this, you will be repaid for not giving up. That is how gracious our God is. The things that you suffer in this life, if you meet them with faith and joy, they will produce for you a glorious reward beyond your comprehension. This is why hardship and suffering is a blessing. So let's see if we can get more of an appreciation for this blessing. James says that the reward that we will receive is the crown of life. What's that? What is the crown of life? Is it a literal crown that all of you believers will be wearing on our heads if we walk around the new earth? Well, no. First of all, the metal or jewel studded crown worn by kings and queens that I think most of us are picturing wasn't the imagery that James was drawing on. Actually, the people in the Greco-Roman world in James' day would likely have pictured a wreath made with laurel leaves like the kind awarded to athletes for winning their various contests. And so the imagery there evokes ideas of strong sportsmen who, after training hard and putting their bodies through much strain, have gained a high level of endurance. And this endurance then allows them to come out victorious in things like races or in great shows of strength. So that's the imagery. The imagery is highly trained athletes who have come out victorious after enduring many trials and hardships. So when we picture the crown of life that James writes about, we should picture highly trained Christians who have come out victorious after enduring many trials and hardships. Believers who have strong spiritual muscles, resilient faith, skillful at meeting hardship with joy, experts at trusting in God. And what is their reward? It's the crown of life. Life itself is the reward for faithfully enduring trials. Just like how a crown is placed on the head of the victor to show forth their glory, in recognition of what they've accomplished, life is given to those who endure trials for Christ's sake to show that they've overcome the world. And the life that God gives to the overcomers is eternal life. It's not like the life that you were born with. The life that you were born with is corrupt, after all. Your body, as we know, is subject to pain and decay. And sin is still present within you. Your heart can still be drawn after evil. And the life you were born with is going to end. Sooner or later, you will die. And were it not for the justifying, cleansing work of Jesus Christ, your soul too will perish in hell. But if you've been born again, you have new life from God. And we already see the effects of this new life here and now. It's a regenerated heart and mind, loving righteousness and seeking after God. But understand that the fullness of this new life is still to come. 
When Christ returns for his church and that trumpet blows and we will meet him in the air, these frail, weak bodies will be changed in an instant into glorified bodies. Perfect. Without sin. Unable to die. No blemishes or defects. Our hearts and minds will be finally and forever free from wickedness. No longer will we need to fight against our flesh. No longer will we need to battle things like lust or pride or selfishness. Because no longer will we, be, will we be susceptible to evil. We'll never again grieve the Lord who saved us. Never again will we thirst for righteousness because we will have drunk of the water that Christ Jesus has given us. And that water will have become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So friends, if you are weary of the fight and burdened by your trials, let these promises encourage you. Your crown is coming. Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer until you receive your prize. And in the meantime, every trial that you face stores up reward for you. All of these glorious things that we've just been talking about. That is going to be yours because of what you face in this life. Because of Christ. So know that we are blessed in and through trials. And so James encourages us to remain steadfast on the trial and to withstand the testing. But now let's get practical. How do we do that in practice? Well, let me ask you, how do you pass any test? You know that trials are tests. So how do you pass any test? Well, first, you've got to learn what you're being tested on. And I'm sure most, if not all of us, have experienced the frustration of being in school and studying for a test and studying the wrong chapter. Studying the wrong chapter in your textbook. Or perhaps the teacher forgot to mention that there will be some topics from a section of the book that you've never read. Well, we believers need to know what we're being tested on and what part of the textbook to read. Of course, we believers have a textbook. It's called the Bible. What part do we need to read in order to prepare for the test? Only the part between the front and the back. That's all. Nothing more than that. But Joseph said, we must aim to become familiar with all of Scripture. Because the Apostle Paul said to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we must prioritize the daily reading of scripture if we are to be able to do as James says and remain steadfast on the trial. That's where you have to start. So listen, it's worth it to wake up 15 minutes earlier so that you can read the word. Instead of watching another video or playing another round of whatever game or whatever else it is, go read scripture. Don't be like the kid at school who shows up to the test unprepared. Well, now that I hopefully have impressed on you the importance of studying for the test, let's look at what's going to be on it. You see, all of the testing that God puts us through comes down to this one thing. Will you trust God or will you sin against Him? So yes, God's tests are multiple choice. Option A, trust God by faith. Option B, sin against him. Now the fact that all of God's tests are about faith should come as no surprise to us. 
Faith in God is central. That's what it's all about. We saw this two weeks ago as we looked at how if we hope to receive anything from God, we must ask in faith. So hearing this, do you realize that every test from God that a man or woman has ever faced in all of Scripture has come down to this one question? Will you believe God? Adam and Eve. Did God really say you would die if you ate from this tree? Abraham. Will God really make my offspring as numerous as the stars, especially after I kill my son Isaac? The Israelites. Will God really bring us safely through this wilderness to the promised land? Peter and the disciples. Was Jesus really the Messiah? We saw him die. Did he really say he would come back to life? You see, an example after example, what we are being tested on is whether we will believe God or not. That's all every trial comes down to. Now, that's not to imply that the trials themselves are easy. Rather, my point is that in whatever we face, standing firm on the trial is ultimately a matter of believing what God has said and then obeying Him. Note that something that stands firm is immovable. So standing firm on the trial is about planting one's faith deep in the ground of God's word and rooting it in his promises. So that when the high winds blow, you don't move from what you know to be true. When the flood waters rise, you do not seek shelter in anyone or anything other than Yahweh God. I want you to consider again the believers to whom James was writing. They had experienced persecution, having to flee from those who wanted to imprison and kill them because they follow Jesus. And this was fleeing even to the point of leaving their country and going to live in foreign lands among foreigners. So keeping in mind, so keeping that in mind, rather, keeping in mind that standing firm under trial is ultimately a matter of believing what God has said and then obeying Him, we should ask ourselves, what would these ancient believers have done to stand firm? Well, first, they would have had faith and believed what Jesus said when he was with them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the battle for these believers would have been to reject what their eyes showed them and to walk by faith. It would have been to reject what they saw of their poverty and how they were harassed and chased. And then to anticipate the things unseen. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer, outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so having understood and believed these things, they would have been filled with joy, hope, and strength to stand firm and reject the temptation to sin. Firstly, the sin of despair. Feeling as though there was no hope. Now that's sinful. And it's sinful because God, through the apostles and prophets, had told them that there was hope. 
So far be it from believers to call God a liar by not believing what he said and despairing when trials and persecution come. And second, there are sins like theft and murder. Many who are poor are faced with that temptation to steal from others to survive and kill anyone who gets in their way. While knowing God's commandments like you shall not kill or you shall not steal, you shall not covet, those commandments would have helped them to stand firm against those sins. Because believing in God's authority and his wisdom to instruct them would have increased their resilience against temptation. And furthermore, knowing that their Heavenly Father had said that he knows what they needed to survive and that he would provide would have given another layer of protection, so to speak. So brethren, be encouraged that the same is true for us today. Believing God really is the key to standing firm against sin and temptation. For example, if you're being trialed with regard to lust and sexual sin, then learn what God has said about that and believe his word and obey him. And are you struggling under, the, under heavy workload and feeling physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted? Are you tempted to grumble and complain against God? I want you to learn what God has said about contentment and trust and obey Him. In all these various trials, learn what God has to say and then do as He says. This is what we must understand if we want to be victorious and receive the crown of life. Finally, brothers and sisters, James provides us with one last tool to help us stand firm through testing. He says, For when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life. And listen carefully to this, which God has promised to those who love him. Recognize that there is a direct link between loving God and standing the test. The text says that those who stand the test receive the crown of life. And then it says that the crown of life is promised to those who love God. So we could say that, so what we could say that is that those who stand the test are those who love God. Brethren, this is extremely helpful because now we have a powerful weapon in our arsenal for standing firm in the midst of trials. What I mean by that is we should be applying ourselves to increasing our love and affection for God. Because this love and affection invigorates our faith and causes us to be more and more devoted to Him. And when we are more and more devoted to our Lord, we will find the thought of sinning against Him to be more and more repulsive. This is why our Lord Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now as you know, our Lord was fond of using parables in His teaching, so I'm going to try it as well. So once there were two brothers who went on a long camping trip with their father. And they decided to set up their tents near a large lake. Now the father was about to take a nap in the cool of the day, but before he did, he warned his sons not to go swimming in the lake because there were alligators in it. Now the father took his nap, and of course, the sons got bored. And guess what they decided to do? Go swimming in the lake. And immediately they were attacked by alligators. They screamed for their father to help them, and hearing his son's distress, the father rushed to the lake to save his sons. He grabbed a large stone, and using it as a club, he began to beat the alligators back. 
with the large reptiles distracted by their father, the sons were able to escape to the safety of land. The father was able to escape too, but was badly injured, and he was bleeding all over. So as the sons tended to their unconscious father's wounds, one of them was overcome by guilt, and seeing how his foolish disobedience almost led to his father's death. Well, a few weeks pass, the father recovers, and the brothers are once again faced with boredom and a sleeping father. And then the lake, glistening in the sun and beckoning with its cool, refreshing water, begins again to look more and more attractive. One son again decides to disobey his father and go for a swim in the lake, but the other refuses. Now after hearing that story, which one of the two brothers do you think showed love, appreciation, and devotion to his father? Of course, it is the one who refused to go back into the lake. The son who refused to go back remembered what his father had done to save him. The great sacrifice that was made on his behalf. Unlike the other son who had no regard for his father and paid no attention to his commands or his mercy, the son, refused, the son who refused to, re, to, to, to return to the lake has spent those weeks while his father was recovering, learning more of his wisdom. He would sit and listen in awe as his father taught him about the many dangers of the woods and how he could avoid them. And growing an affection for his father as he replayed over and over in his mind how his father had loved him enough to risk his own life to save his. And day and night he would remember the fear he felt as those alligators opened their jaws wide at And he thought of how joyful and grateful he was when he saw his father leap into the water to fight for him. Thus, his daily meditation on his father's love for him had caused his heart to swell in turn with love for his father. And so, when tempted again by the desire to go swimming in the lake, and when tempted by his foolish brother, the idea of dishonoring his father's sacrifice with disobedience was repulsive and disgusting. How could he go back to the foolishness that he had done before? And so, brethren, recognize that we too find ourselves in this position. We are sinners who have been saved by a gracious God, yet we are drawn to disobey him and fall back into the same sins that he saved us from. Jesus Christ bore our shame and took the wrath of God, dying a shameful death by being nailed to a wooden cross. He who was the high king of heaven made himself lowly, and as Paul says in Philippians, he made himself of no reputation. And this was in order to rescue us, not from alligators or any such earthly peril, but from an eternity in the flames of hell. In such a place, there's only sorrow and unimaginable pain. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's nothing but outer darkness forever. This is what we were saved from. So knowing this, how can we find it easy or even enjoyable to sin against Christ? Brethren, like the grateful son, we need to meditate day and night on the goodness and mercy of God that has been shown to us in the gospel. In order to increase our love and affection for Christ Jesus, we need to read in scripture about what he has done and what he will do. We need to let our hearts swell at the magnificence of his deeds, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to keep the sweetness of his love for us repeated in our minds. 
and praying to our Heavenly Father and offering thanksgiving and praise to remind ourselves from where our help comes. Friends, when you do things like these, Christ becomes more and more sweet and more and more lovely to you. And sin becomes bitter and detestable. Such that when trials, tests and temptations come, you can indeed stand firm against them in obedience and faith. If your passions for Christ are dull, you will find yourself failing when times of testing come, as disobedience will seem better to you than trusting in the Lord. But if you work to fan the flames of your affections for Christ, you will have joy as you face trials and stand firm in your faith. So brothers and sisters, use what you have heard here today to give you strength in the coming week. Stand firm in the faith when being tested. Trust God and obey Him. For your reward is coming soon. Soon you will shine in the glory of eternal life. Eternal life being the reward or crown that stands as a testament to all the hardships you have endured for the sake of Christ. It stands as a testament to how God did not leave you in your sin, but how He has worked in you to refine you and shape you into the image of Christ. So don't lose hope. Keep the faith. Because God gives eternal life to those who faithfully endure trials.